family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, and we look forward to some improvisational conversation and interesting music. And we look forward to Ed Rosenfeld, our featured guest at 8.30, former editor of Omni Magazine, founder of the Intelligence Newsletter, a very interesting newsletter about uh, technology and computer intelligence, and author of a book called The Book of Highs. It's exactly what you think it is. 255 ways to alter your consciousness without drugs. Originally written by Ed in 1972. He has revised it. It's doing very well. We'll get into that. We'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. An existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. And joining in the conversational improv... Our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate back from London, Victoria Sullivan, and Radio Woodstock on-air weekend warrior Ron Van Wormer. We'll have uh, our musical jukebox surprises during the 8 o'clock hour as well. And some of the subjects we'll be talking about are, is capital losing its grip in the U.S., fear of losing status, the real reason Trump is president, and why we need Less rationality, more romanticism. Fasten your seatbelts. We hope it'll be a bumpy ride. Get ready for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. We're ready to go at it. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Good Doug. morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Victoria. Get Good ready morning. to start your engines. Welcome back from London. Thank you. Visiting family over there? Visiting my daughter, but having a, a hoot of a time going around London, going to the theater, going down to Sussex, where literary people lived in their little country houses. <laughs> it was great. They... Uh, Sequester literary people in Sussex? <laughs> well, in the 1920s and uh, the late teens, Virginia Woolf and her husband took a place down there. And then her sister, Vanessa Bell, who was very big in the Bloomsbury Circle, a painter, got a house down there for an interesting sort of reason. In 1916, it was the First World War, and they were starting to send anyone in England male from 17 to 41 might be drafted into the army. Wow. And there were some people who really didn't want to go, as obviously, uh, and pacifists. And what happened with Vanessa Bell is that she knew these two young men, not that young, I mean, late 20s, early 30s, who were liable to be drafted, and they were both um, non-combatant types. But you couldn't just say that. You had to get a job, and you couldn't be self-employed. You had to get a job being paid by someone and also say that it was against your conscience to go to war. So she found some local farmer who would hire these guys. <laughs> one was a painter and one was a writer. And uh, she set up this wonderful house down there with just beautiful rooms, and she was very creative herself, painting the walls, painting around the fireplaces, you know. It, it's, uh, Bloomsbury is an amazing group. It reminds me a little of the early Woodstock people, you know, the Birdcliff colony. And it's interesting because we're going to get into what is referred to as romanticism, mm -hmm. which refers to a very specific period right. um, in Europe, yep. including England. Um, and why uh, one particular author we're going to talk about, um, or journalist, is, is calling for a new romanticism. Huh. Uh, <laughs> so we will get into that, but welcome back. Um, it's been fairly well accepted uh, that the reason an outlier such as Donald Trump got elected is 
the reason that dominates most political situation, that's the economy. Um, now, even though I bought into that, I've been repeating quite frequently a stat which came out in 2016, which really blew my mind because as soon as I read it, <clears throat> I said, this is really the engine that's driving uh, the bus called American culture, which seems to be careening <laughs> over the edge. <laughs> and that statistic is that in 2016, for the first time in American cultural history, uh, over 50% of Americans born are non-white. Mm. Now, even if people don't know that's that, they feel it. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how whites, particularly white male, but white women also who, who voted for Trump um, and are part of, members of the Tea Party, which was very powerful before Donald Trump showed up on the political scene. Um, the fundamental right, the religious right, which has been growing for some time, that really what they were scared of um, is multiculturalism. Yes. And what that stat showed is you can't stop it. <laughs> right. Then you throw in globalization, which is an easy word to throw around. Oh, it's globalization. Uh, yeah, we're more aware of things going around. No, globalization is is the force that is is running the show. And it refers to trade it refers to um, communication it refers to the fact that as marshall McLuhan predicted we are now living in a global village mm -hmm. um, we know now about all the cultures we see them we email with them we we connect with them in ways that were never possible before and while a lot of us would consider this a very positive trait it does wreak havoc it does cause a lot of lurching back and forth and problems that's why we're seeing trade wars and all this stuff but anyway an article came out uh citing a study published about a week ago um in the proceeding of the national academy of science that's no hack job okay that's real <laughs> science that actually contradicts the idea that while obviously the economy is always an important issue that's not the reason that trump won Hmm. A lot of people say, oh, it's because of racism. Well, not. You have to expand that because a lot of people who are not racist voted for Donald Trump, who you might not expect to. Um, according to the study, um, it's not a threat to their own economic well-being that has scared millions of Americans. It's a threat to the group's dominance um, even before conducting the analysis, the study noted two reasons for skepticism about economic anxiety or the left-behind theory. First, the economy was improving before the 2016 election. Second, while research has suggested that voters are swayed by the economy, there's little evidence that their own financial situation influences their choices at the ballot box. Losing a job or income between 2012 and 2016 did not make a person any more likely to support Trump or Clinton. Hmm. Um, for further evidence, the study analyzed a separate survey conducted in 2016 by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. It showed that the anxiety that anxieties about retirement, education, and medical bills had little impact on whether someone voted for Trump or not. Foolish them. They should have worried about those things. <laughs> well, but they're more worried about something else. Right. The findings revealed a fear of both personal status being lost mm -hmm. and also American status being right. lost. That's why globalization scares so mm. many Americans because it, it's a human trait. It's not just an American trait. America has dominated <coughs> the, 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 the globe economically since 19 since the end of the world war ii we now know that china is right on our heels and is according to most people going to surpass us at some point in the next 20 years mm -hmm. not because we're bad and they're good at economics it's the way it's the way nature works right 
Uh, empires rise and fall. Long range planning than we are. Okay, but but it wouldn't matter. Empires rise and fall, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's not you know y- you don't become the number one empire and then just stay that way. So, <clears throat> and we know from history that when empires either are falling or feel that they're falling, they don't act real well. Right. <laughs> In fact, Romans being a great example, the first thing they do, whether they're conscious of it or not, is they send out mercenaries. Mm. And they, you know, you think, oh my God, I'm being attacked, n- not physically, but we're being attacked economically, we're being in we're being attacked socially in social media in the images that we see every day. And we never, you know, when we were growing up in the so-called radical 60s, one thing that made it radical, suddenly you saw a lot of black faces mm-hmm. um, leading. And women on the front lines. And women. Shaking their fists. And that scared the hell out of a lot of people. <laughs> yes. Um, so... Uh, you know this it's a really interesting subject because part of their 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 fear is real this is the trend and they can't stop it Mm -hmm. globalization can be slowed down but it cannot be stopped it's being driven by technology um well, that's where a slogan like make america great again is so sort of perfidious because it's sort of like saying, one, we can do that, and you're saying, well, great, measured by what? The Chinese are probably going to pass us in the next 20 years. But you get that statement, that slogan, make America great again, and and that seems like a cause that's worth fighting for, but it's the, again, that's sort of scary in it. And then, well, when were we great exactly, and how do you define greatness? Well, but that's not what they're talking, they're not, yes, you're right. I mean, that's a, it's very important to discuss what makes a, a culture great. Um, economics is certainly part of it, but not, mm-hmm. not all of it, which gets to our third article we'll get to. But uh, the, the point is that uh, we don't read and understand history and deal with the psychological issue that, yeah, it's always, it can be a tough thing for anyone personally to lose status. Um, Status is an important thing to our species. Uh, It's part of how we survive. It's part of our identity. It's part of our identity, how we think. And even primates have it. Absolutely. (laughs) The lead ape. So we were the lead apes for a long time. That's right. Now, we were given this call it a gift called the um, cerebral cortex, which is a part of our brain that other other mammals don't share, which gives us the ability to see beyond ourselves. Mm. We're not using it real well or well enough because uh, globalization seen from a different perspective offers enormous opportunities to everybody, including white male Americans. But But it used to be you could just be born and have that status. Well, that's right. Now you have to be clever. And the reason Trump and the Tea Party and the uh, uh, religious right are shrewd is they'll use a slogan like they, they get whites who are screwed by the system, manipulated by the tax code, um, forced into low paying jobs, right? They get them to vote for them by preying on the f- uh, a mammalian fear and, and a human fear of loss of status. Mm-hmm. So they can say the reason you're feeling dread, uh, the reason that you're not making more money is not because the system is manipulated exactly that way by American cultural leaders and business leaders. No, that's not it. It's because all these black faces and all these Hispanic faces and all these feminine mm. faces and all these Arab faces around the mm-hmm. world are are, are t- t- robbing you of your status. So that's the whole anti-immigration thing. You bet. Just keep your eye on that border because I saw recently the fewest people have crossed the Mexican border into the United States this past year in the last 17 years. We don't have a lot of people sneaking in over that border anymore 
<laughs> but, but it doesn't matter because if they make the image of a caravan could, moving you, towards it. But if you could pick three words to capture that fear that so many whites have of losing status because of forces that nobody can, can fully control, globalization, multiculturalism, more African-Americans, more women, more Hispanics, more people of color in positions of power. Mm-hmm. That's on the rise. That ain't, you're not stopping it. So if you had to come up with three words to capture that fear and fool people into thinking you're going to protect them, it's build a wall. Yeah, mm. absolutely. It's per- perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's that's so not simple. Just, it's it's just, like a child's comic book. It's oh, not, the bad guys are coming. We must build a wall. It's the three <laughs> little know? pigs. It's a nursery right. rhyme. It's, right. and, and, and there's, I'll there's blow your history. house down. Yeah. Right. China built a wall. Worked for them. <laughs> not for long. <laughs> well, that's the that's the that's what happens in the the uh, cycle of the Russians empire. built the wall. The Russians built a wall in East Germany. That's How'd right. that work out? Yeah. And the wall is not just physical, it's psychological. Yeah. That's the brilliance of it. We're going to protect you both physically, the physical wall, and with a psychological wall. Um, in other words, bury your head in your sand and exactly. we'll protect you. Mm-hmm. Right. Here comes a big wave, but don't just don't stand on the beach and you won't get wet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. And unless Democrats, and you know my trust in Democrats is not high, oh, um, no. that they'll be smart. Um, as a party, <laughs> if they don't understand this next time, you know, they could blow elections again. Mm. Um, this is the key. And so we get to article number two, which was a different day, but easy to see the connection. The headline of the article is, yes, I'm running as a socialist. Why candidates are embracing the label in 2018. Now, we pointed out on the show many times how to me interesting and cynical it was that as soon as Barack Obama became president of the United States, which was almost as irrational as Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. Why do I say that? I never thought we would see an an African-American president in my lifetime, Uh, in our lifetime. I certainly thought there would be a woman before a, uh, an African-American. I did, too. And Hillary Clinton was a huge favorite to win the nomination over know, this unknown African-American, Barack uh, Obama, with an Arab name. There was a <laughs> there was a Kiefer Sullivan, very good, not Sullivan, Kiefer, whatever his last name is. Sutherland? Sutherland, thank you, uh, who was on this show called 24, about 24 mm-hmm. hours. They had a black president on that show. And that was a number of years back. And when yeah. I saw that, I thought, that's an interesting casting move. Very masculine, nice, deep voice, rational person, except I think he freaks out at some point in the many episodes. But <laughs> uh, but early on, and I thought, that's very interesting. And I've seen more of that. It's almost it comes up in movies or TV shows before it happens in real life in the U.S. True. And, but what I remember is when Barack Obama got elected, and I said, wow, that's amazing. And, uh uh-oh, what's going to happen? There's going to be a backlash on this one. You know what the right-wing media referred to him as? They couldn't refer to him what they wanted to refer to him (laughs) as, right? They said, you know what the most uh, antithetical um, label we can put on him? The, The nastiest, the nastiest, most venomous label we can put on this African American man and get away with it, they called him a socialist. <laughs> Go back wow. and look at it. Huh. That word kept coming up. He's a socialist. And you know what? That was that was effective back in 2008. Mm. Calling someone a socialist That's same as a communist is at that time, I think. Yeah. Not really much different than calling him a communist. So what I found interesting is that Bernie Sanders who really lit a fire, particularly under millennials, called himself a democratic socialist. He he embraced it. He embraced it. Right. Now, I'm still not convinced, even despite this article, which we'll go into, I'm still not convinced that that leading with I'm a socialist, um, though it's gaining favor, is a good move 
um, in a national election. I, think that I don't think it yeah, is, but I, we're getting there. I think Americans don't really understand what socialism is, and I think a lot of them would be surprised if you said, you know, the five happiest countries in the world, which are, you know, Scandinavians and others, are also five socialist countries. Like, people are happier in a socialist country because they know they, they have a security blanket. They're not going to fall through. And uh, But I don't think Americans realize that. If you said, do you know that those people over there are socialists? They, really? You know, yeah. the, well, the Swedes are socialists, the Brits are socialists. They're not described that way here. And only if it's ever pointed out a problem. Oh, well, their medical service isn't that good, you know, because they're socialists. But you see, we love calling each other names and we we fall prey to it. When the fact is that, partic- that since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a mm. patrician, <laughs> yes, talk about was. people who support capitalism, um, came in. And had to bully it through, mm-hmm. had to hit a lot, you know, politically had to beat up a lot of heads, bang a lot of heads to get it done, but got in the social security system. Yeah. That's socialist. And my favorite line of the last campaign was there was a town hall meeting down like in South Carolina, and this you know, like white, bigoted, uh, blue collar guy. Gets up in the town hall meeting to ask his question, and he says, "Get the darn government out of my Medicare." <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good one. You don't have to go any further than that <laughs> to figure out how screwed our country is. That 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 a lot of people believe that that the pro that, that get government get government out of our lives. Oh, really? You want to give up your Medicare? You want to give up security? that Social Security check? Nobody does. No. Nobody in their right mind does. I mean, they, the other side sometimes says, well, we should privatize all this. Look at that. Americans are privatized, and they have barely a penny in savings. I mean, you know, any area where we've been allowed to make free choices, uh, masses of people make bad choices, as it turns out. Well, the article <laughs> yeah. points to um, this judge. You know, judges, a lot of judges run for office. But uh, this Democrat was unopposed. It was obviously a, a Democratic area. But it's still interesting that uh, he's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, an avowed socialist. Now, I don't think it's still a good idea nationally to say I'm part of the Democratic Socialists of America. But the point of the article is, and this is a stat that to me is right up there with the fact that as of 2016, more than 50% of Americans born are non-white. And let me find the stat because it's stunning. Here we go. A 2016 survey of 18 to 29-year-olds by Harvard's Institute of Politics found 16% identified themselves as socialists, while 33% supported socialism. Only 42% supported capitalism, while a majority, 51%, said they did not. Huh. So we're in a transition, people. We're not a socialist country. We may never be a totally socialist country. Since the 1930s, we have been an amalgam. There's been a tug of war between socialist tendencies and pure capitalist tendencies. Mm-hmm. The tug of war has gone back and forth. Um, but what a statistic. More than 50% of millennials say they do not support capitalism. Mm -hmm. And why are they saying that? Because they're looking at college debt. Mm -hmm. If you're a capitalist, the stupidest thing you could have continued to support was making money off of students (laughs) with usurious debt. Yes. It was really dumb because... Um, and have people like Paul Ryan come up and say, hey, listen, this Social Security thing, we're going to... Millennials understand they're, they're, they're paying a lot of money into a system that may be bankrupt by the time they're supposed to get their money. Paul Ryan used Social Security. His father died when he was young, and he got Social Security throughout his, his school years and went to college with Social Security. Wants to cut it. Right. <laughs> so he benefited greatly from it. So... It, it's just an it's an amazing shell game, a psychological shell game that's being played, and I think also there have been so many um, 
big bank frauds and things that capitalism is getting more and more besmirched and and the whole mortgage crisis thing where they looked into it and saw that they were making ludicrous loans just for the money because there was no possibility they were going to be paid back and i think young people between 18 and 29 or whatever are smart enough to see this this is what they've grown up with seeing again and again and again uh Things like oil spills that, you know, don't get cleaned up fast enough or et cetera. They've seen that sort of raw capitalism can be very cruel and um, uncaring of society. So if we really are going to try to get into the intricacies of it, which is important, it's not so much either your capitalist or your socialist. It's how, how do we integrate those two things? And as you pointed out, UN studies have shown now for decades the happiest people in the world, um, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, the Netherlands, um, are integrate. They are not pure socialist countries. They just aren't. No. Right. They. If you're an entrepreneur, you can do well there, but you're going to pay higher taxes. But you know that those, the majority of those taxes are not going to fight stupid wars. They're going to make sure that everybody has good health care and right. everybody is, who wants it can get a college education right. free. And they do a lot more with child care and supportive mm-hmm. birth processes. Yep. And, and then one of the things I noticed in London is there's a lot of health clubs around and they're not private. They're sort of connected to the government in some way. So they're not very expensive. And when I went to do the aqua aerobics with my daughter, there were all these women in uh, burkas and things in the pool. You know, like <laughs> it was a, a wide range of people showing up for these classes economically. It wasn't like our health clubs. You have the high end ones and mm-hmm. you have the low end ones. And it was just so nice to think that you could go around the city and for a very small price, you know, go use a health club. And the p- health clubs were nice. They weren't like housing projects or something. They were nice beautiful pools again the propaganda we get here is oh yeah but you go to canada or england you're gonna have to wait four months to have an operation but not to take an aqua aerobics class (laughs) well first of all that's not true (laughs) no um and and but it's a good fear tactic Mm -hmm. so anyway it's just interesting that um over 50 percent of millennials do not support Capitalism. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily they want 100% socialist, but they're not buying into what a lot of us bought into for decades. And it's going to be interesting to see how this worked itself out, because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the reaction to an African-American president was, hello, Donald Trump. Right. What is the reaction to Donald Trump going to be? It looks like it's going to be a real push for more socialist policies uh, of a, a more what they call a more equal playing field it's interesting if they could come up with another term for socialism or they've got to transform socialism to a positive rather than a negative sure definitely that so if you can come up with another term for it that that nobody has any feeling for one way or the other you could you could have it without well what these articles are saying is that may negative. not be necessary because right. because um you're probably not going to be able to do that. Now, what you can do is reframe what socialism right. is because a lot of less educated or more prejudiced people are people who are just tied to this fear that, that may be conscious and unconscious that they're losing their st- status. Right. Right? I mean, is America is the fact that you're not the economic... Um, bully of the world mean you're losing status no one is predicting that the united states is is going to decline into total economic you know chaos no we're just not going to be the dominating force we've been (laughs) well grow up that doesn't (laughs) mean you can't do well it's called you know like you're supposed to teach kids to, to play nice in the playground and share a little bit. Except mm-hmm. they don't teach them that anymore. They all get an award no matter what they do. <laughs> <laughs> and their parents run out on the field and scream at the coaches and the I, referees. I love that. <laughs> you love See, that. See, I'm in favor of that because I do like chaos at a certain point. <laughs> and, and I remember that as a little leaguer, you know, parents just screaming at the coaches <laughs> and running into the field. I love that. I just thought that was, wow. 
I thought we were playing a game. Well, this is now why we have the Congress the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're either on one team or the other. There's no meeting of the minds. Anyway, we'll come back and talk more. I am flesh and I am bone. Rise up, ting, ting, like glitter and gold. I got fire in my soul. Rise up, ting, ting, like glitter. I believe this is still the Woodstock Roundtable. <laughs> so uh, I'm Doug Runthy, your host. Victoria Sullivan, back from London, visiting family. She is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, which means we get a poem later on. Yes, you do. That's always a good thing. <laughs> and you're going to tell us about an event you'll be reading at. Yes. Um, a little bit later, Ron Van Warmer's here. He, um, as many of you know, is on the air a lot weekends here at Radio Woodstock. That's a good thing, too. Um, he participates in our conversation. We're talking about socialism socialist tendencies that there's always been a tug of war since the 1930s in our country between socialist policies and and more pure capitalist policies uh how we integrate them is a big deal but millennials statistically now are against capitalism over 50 percent because of what they see with college debt um, what they see as totally unfair taxes that paying into a social security system that may not be um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Functioning well. <laughs> yeah, but what's the word? Uh, uh, well, be funded, right? Uh, what's the, there's a t- there's a term for it. It just escaped my mind. Um, and uh, invested. Vested. I don't. I don't. I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them. Um, now, some are more radical. They want to abolish a prison system. See, here's the thing. We've talked about it a lot. It makes perfect sense to advocate capitalism when it comes to. You want to produce a widget? You want to sell as many as you can? You want to get as much for it as you can? Knock yourself out as long as you're playing by the rules, right? Become a multimillionaire, right? Great. But you can't have capitalism and health together. It doesn't work. You can't have for-profit hospitals and expect them to provide care to everybody. You can't have a for-profit prison system. And expect right. it not to be horrific. It's just, it's just common sense. You have to distinguish, right? And I would say the same thing with education. Now, you know, um, it, it just, but it gets to something that's even deeper. Now we get into philosophy and something that you were talking about before, the Age of Enlightenment. Um, there's a magazine called Eon, A-E-O-N, which is the Greek way of spelling eon meaning a long period of time Mm. it's a philosophical magazine um i got it online a lot of good articles this one's called enlightenment rationality is not enough we need a new romanticism and what they're talking about here is that and i've always bridled against this the age starting with the italian renaissance um and coming up through the 20th century called the age of enlightenment to me, if you're going to call something the Age of Enlightenment, it should mean because people are uh, philosophically, psychologically, socially, and creatively very open-minded. But that's not what the Age of Enlightenment refers to. Hmm. The Age of Enlightenment refers to a worldview that is rational and materialistic. And that worldview created most of the modern conveniences that we enjoy today. It's Galileo. It, it, it informs Newton. It informs Descartes. It informs the Industrial Revolution. It's the attitude that nature is there to be analyzed by the human brain, the human mind. We take it apart and we break it down into smaller parts. <clears throat> we understand it better. And we understand how we can use it more to our advantage. Inherently, that's a smart process. But like anything else, when taken to its extreme, it produces horrific pollution, 
an inequal, uh, in, unequal pay for, for Why work. would enlightenment produce um, pollution? I would think the enlightened mind, which is also the logical <clears throat> mind, would say pollution is a bad side effect. We must find a way to do whatever we're doing without generating pollution. Because we went too far. We said, hey, listen, science, particularly the science that looks at the world as material and breaks it down to smaller parts and sees it as interchangeable pieces, that's how you get hierarchy. That's how you get uh, the division of labor, all of which is very efficient. Factories were the most efficient ways of producing goods, right? Right, but then they, we they, got... they work in terms of efficiency. The problem is they produced horrific pollution and they produce an economic system where those at the top want to suppress the wages of those at the mm -hmm. bottom. Um, and um, so it worked beautifully for, for quite some but time. But you're making enlightenment sort of equal to a kind of pure, rational drive. I'm that not doing that at all. What I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is historically... What is referred to as the age of enlightenment uh -huh. refers to that worldview. And I would agree that that's not enlightenment. Enlightenment would include being efficient, producing wealth, expanding the opportunity for wealth, which capitalism does. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, being aware of not polluting ourselves to the point we have and not suppressing people's wages so we can keep them under control. In an unfair in an unfair system, an enlightened mind would figure out how to, how to integrate those things. I'm referring to the fact that the age of enlightenment specifically refers to that worldview, mm -hmm. and that worldview is now being challenged. It was challenged in the in the 19th century by the Romantics. Right, that's the thing. I mean, in literature, we think of the Enlightenment pretty purely as the 18th century and Alexander Pope and Samuel Johnson and, and the thinkers of that period who were pushing rationality after a more religious worldview of, the say, the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. And so when they went into the 18th century, they started saying, well, we have to look at things. We have to do things by science. And, and we got some great documents out of it. I mean, to say we hold this, these uh, truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That was an enlightenment statement. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're right. In, in terms of literature and art, uh, there was this swing back in the early 19th century towards the romantic, the spiritual, the emotional, the looking inward as opposed to looking outward. And also understanding that while it is useful to see the world as material to be used, mm -hmm. If taken to its extreme, we use it no matter what the consequences are. So, hey, you know what? The most efficient, it's, you can make a lot of money, <clears throat> you know, destroying the rainforest. Right. Is it a good and idea? we're doing it. Is it a good idea? No. <laughs> um, you know, uh, probably the greatest asset, the greatest resource that the United States geographically had was its arable soil. Yeah. How, what we've done, we've toxified it. So, and that's all comes, it comes out of this worldview, this philosophy of the world is there for us to disassemble and reassemble to our benefit. Mm -hmm. The romantic reaction to that was, wait a minute. And, and it wasn't just the poets. It was, it was journalists like Charles Dickens. He was a journalist as much as a novelist pointing at, look at these factories. They're toxic they're, they're horrific, toxic environments. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the, um, and, and, and so, th but they also, as you point out, said, wait a minute, to be a full human being, we can't just be <clears throat> manipulating nature. We have to be appreciating it. We have to be in awe of it. We have to understand its beauty and we can't rob it of its beauty just to give ourselves more stuff. And also the whole idea of spirit, because if you had a very religiously <clears throat> controlled society, as they did for a long time, and then you break away from that partly through rationalism, then rationalism goes too far so that there was a lot of awe of nature, too. In other words, in the Romantics, it was mysterious. Mm -hmm. They loved mountains. They adored mountains just because they were so high. 
you know, like, and they... Majestic. And they also got into more my personal feelings are significant as opposed to the social contract and, and the out there. There was a lot of looking inward in the romantic period, you know, who am I? And we're, in some ways, we're still romantics, I think. I mean, we've we've retained that me, 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 I'm, I'm so special, which is a kind of romantic view more than, you know, the, the generalizations about humankind. But the romantic view was not as egotistical. It wasn't about me, 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 all that matters is me. It was, <clears throat> you know, for me to be fully human, I have to... I have to feel have an emotional connection to nature, not just an intellectual right. and materialistic one. Right. Yeah, it wasn't all self-centered, but it was a, a, a real turn away from a long period of thinking that, you know, there were certain right and wrong human behaviors. And it becomes much more subjective with the romantics, like, well, the world might say I'm wrong to run around and make love to all these people, and I'm Lord Byron, but I feel like I'm bringing joy to these women, and and sensuality is, is part of nature. Well, this author, Jim Kosovic, is saying that we are ripe for a new romanticism. I'll read a little bit from his article. In our new era of enlightenment, we need romanticism again. In his speech, Politics and Conscience, 1984, talk about if you had to pick out one person who successfully integrated the material world and the more philosophically ideal spiritual world, it's Vaclav Havel, president of Czechoslovakia, who is a philosopher by trade and a playwright. Discussing factories and smokestacks on the horizon back in 1984, um, he said he explained just why people thought they could explain and conquer nature, yet they destroyed it and disinherited themselves from it. Mm. That's the romantic view. It's not the romantic view isn't anti-science. It's not against science. It's against it's against the extreme position that nature is there for us to manipulate to our advantage only. Mm-hmm. Look where that's gotten us. It was Havel who really, I think, had an integrated because he was not against capitalism either. But his, he's, he's making a philosophical point. People thought they could explain and conquer nature, yet they destroyed it and disinherited themselves from it. Havel was not against industry. He was just for labor relations and protection of the environment. Okay. We are now on the verge of a new revolution in control over life through the uh, gene editing tool. And if you haven't heard this phrase, get ready. CRISPR-Cas9, which has given us the ability to tinker the heritable genetic code of humans. In this uncharted territory where ethical issues are rife, we can get blindsided by sinking too much of our faith into science and losing our sense of humanity or belief in human rights. Science should inform values, but it shouldn't determine all values. For instance, scientists are pricing new drugs, some of these new genetically modified drugs, which are going to save people from horrible diseases, right? Well, there's a gene therapy to restore vision. You know what it costs? $850,000. The first genetically engineered immune system T-cell to fight cancer will cost you $475,000. Despite manufacturing cost estimates of $25,000. Here's where capitalism goes awry. Because capitalism says, maximize your profit. And that's fine when you're selling widgets. If people want to pay you a million dollars for your widget, go get it. But it is immoral to charge people $850,000 or $475,000 for something that costs you $25,000 when it's their health and their well-being at stake. But all we got to do is look at drug companies and see where where it's gotten us. And the drug companies won't do the research unless there's huge profits related to doing the research. Unless there's potential huge profits. They do a lot of research that ends up not producing a drug. Right. But (laughs) but the research that they do, and they do sometimes for a, um, a disease that isn't a huge disease. So maybe 2% of the population has it, and there's not a lot of profit in that unless you charge huge amounts of money for the, for the cure. But they're charging huge amounts of money for people, for diseases that are rampant, like That's cancer. True. So 
there's the point at which capitalism works is a point at which it doesn't. And we're kind of teetering. We know it's out of whack. And it's going to be interesting. Uh, I continue with the article. He says, with science becoming a brutal game of market forces and patent controls, the skeptics and romantics among us must weigh in. And we already are. Um, The industrialization of the 20th century put an end to romanticism, but with its passing, we risk losing a power of introspection and personal consciousness and responsibility. The tension that typified romanticism, that nature exists beyond the dominion of human reason, requires active contemplations and conscience. Evolution is true, and science is meaningful. But glib or mercenary extrapolations of what science shows us puts us all at risk. Mm-hmm. So, big issue and not an easy one because the tension persists. The biggest tug of war is not between science and religion. The biggest tug of war is between the primal connection to nature and scientific institutional power. We are undergoing a cultural reawakening, a sort of romantic revivalism as scientific inquiry fails to fully construct a complete picture of nature as theories of everything continue to fail and as science is exploited into dystopian i love the word dystopian the opposite of utopian realities um and this is already at the forefront with drug prices it's insane it is insane but you know a word that doesn't come up in this argument is morality And, of course, that's a very dangerous word because everyone has a different sense of morality. But I think maybe it's time, along with what this gentleman says about the, you know, changing our notions of our relationship to nature, uh, changing our notions of relationship to the individual and the society. And what you're saying about, you know, it's terrible, these prices. There's like a morality involved. Can some people afford it and some people not? If some people could afford it because they're hyper-rich, maybe everyone who has one of those operations that costs $400,000 to put the the corrective DNA into you uh, should have to buy one for a poor person. So that you say, well, that's the moral price. You get the thing and you get it at that price, but you also pay a second time, and, and that's your neighbor down the block who has no money. Well, that sounds like socialism. No, it's something different. It's not socialism. It's no. it's more like some kind of like a, a, a totally impossible scheme. But I mean that recognition that just because you're wealthy and somewhat lucky in a lot of cases, your parents had money that you maybe then made much more money with, or you happened like uh, Zuckerberg to you know hit on a good scheme uh, mm-hmm. while you were in Harvard uh, and made up Facebook. Um, and some of those people I think do recognize. Some of the wealthiest wealthiest ones do recognize that uh, they live in a world with other human beings. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not particularly a moralist, but I like the idea that there's something called decency. You, <laughs> but you can't legislate <laughs> morality. What you can do is create a more equal playing field. Um, and again, I, I say it goes back to something that's very, not easy to fix, but it's simple to explain, which is we have to make a determination as to where Free capitalism makes sense, and where a more socialist policy makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have social security in our country. Mm-hmm. I think most Americans would say we, we want to keep that. Yeah. That is not a capitalist notion. That is a socialist right. notion. It's a question of how we balance it. And again, I see no problem with for-profit hospitals— um, for people who have the money and say, I want the best doctor. The best doctor wants to make the most money. Therefore, I'm going to that hospital and I will pay for the better doctor. And you can do that. In, you can do that. In England and in yeah. Sweden. You can, you no. can jump the line if you have the money. You if can you have the money, there's, there's no, I, there, should be, there should be no ban against a private hospital that offers that. What we're saying is there needs to be a public hospital with good doctors, um, uh, good nurses. That's free. Right. And Otherwise, our, you can't have a successful culture if most of your people are sick. If you gave the doctors a free education, 
instead of charging them yep. hundreds of thousands of dollars, they could afford to work at a public hospital and not get paid as mm-hmm. much because they're not paying off their debt for the you know the first 20 yep. years of their career. That's true, too. And by the way, and I had a doctor on who said it because I talked about that. This is about 20 years ago, a New Paltz doctor. And he said as he was graduating um, med school, you know who's on campus? All the drug companies. Mm. And what they're basically telling you is, if you don't play by our rules, good luck having a successful practice. He said it was no different than the mafia. Wow. Mm. So at some point we have to step in and say, you can have private hospitals, no, no law against it. You want to pay a million dollars for the best? Knock yourself out. But you you have to have a single payer. Um, you have to have, you have to prov- any culture can't to be successful can't have a lot of sick people running around. You got to provide health. Yeah, and you can't charge them. You, you can't bankrupt them. You can't you can't force people to make a choice between being healthy and being poor. It's the purpose of a society. It's common take care sense. Of society. It's just it's there. Yeah, there's a moral part to it, but there's a totally practical. Yeah. Right. What's it? What is it costing us to have all the, so many sick people running around because they can't <laughs> get good health care? What's that cost? Yeah. Anyway, it, it's interesting. All these three articles, I think, are all connected, um, and which is that we, you know, we it comes down to education. You know, we're not educated to be free, expansive thinking people. We're educated based on a 19th century industrial model. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do, if you don't think that's true, is look at the architecture. I've talked about this ad infinitum of of, uh, grade schools and high schools. Those, Those drab brick buildings. They are factories. That's what they were set up to be in the 19th century based on the fact that that's the most efficient way to create things is a factory where you have the people at the top who run the serfs at the bottom and it's time for change. Right. And millennials are going to demand it. You watch. I think you think the me too movement is tough. (laughs) You think Occupy Wall Street had its moments. Just look at the teacher strikes in West Virginia and Arizona. Yeah, you couldn't have gotten away with that four years ago. Public schools have certainly gone down, but I think there have been a lot of changes in educational theory in the last 10, 20, 30 years, and it isn't quite the the factory turning out like little factory drones anymore. I think there is... How do you but, explain the textbooks? Well, it's unfortunately, it's it's the wealthy people who get to send their kids to the best schools that have the more upgraded textbooks and... It's it's a small percent of the populace, but they, they understand the theory, but they're not practicing it in most schools. They, they understand that you do want to teach kids to think. Um, not the people I know whose kids are in school, in grade schools. They're overloaded with busy work. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into this <laughs> another time. Uh, and, uh, hey, that was a quick hour. If nothing yeah. else, we move time fast. <laughs> 